When you think of dynamic duos, what comes to mind? Thelma and Louise, Bonnie and Clyde, Batman and Robin, Shaq and Kobe, Butch and Sundance. Whether in real life or make-believe, sometimes a story is just better when you have a dynamic pair of characters working together. Let me show you why on this episode of By the Verse. Welcome to By the Verse, a podcast that is all about God's Word. Well, our previous episode, we walked through the first three judges in Judges chapter 3. Each one of them was very different, but they all accomplished the same thing. So without any delay, let's hop right into chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heraseth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. Now, there is something interesting here to note. Even though the chapters start out chronologically, immediately after Shamgar, he was our last judge that we dealt with in chapter 3, it doesn't mention Shamgar here. It actually mentions Ehud. Now, this could mean that Shamgar's exploits were very isolated and that he was never really a prominent figure. And so Ehud being the more prominent Uh, of the two, uh, maybe he's the reason why this story uh, is starting out talking about, you know, after the death of Ehud. Whatever the case may be, uh, we see that the cycle we've already been talking about picks right back up again. Uh, The people return to idol worship, and so the Lord sold or surrendered them over to the power of Jabin, who was the king of Canaan. The land of Canaan occupied a long strip of land along the Mediterranean coast. Now, I know when we think of uh, the land of Canaan, we think of all Israel, and that's because sometimes uh, Canaan or Canaanite is sometimes a, a general reference term where a lot of people get clumped into that. Uh, but now that the people have settled in most of their land, the, the specific land of Canaan is kind of a narrow strip right along uh, the Mediterranean coast there, and it adjoins uh, the central to northern part of Israel. And so the setting of this whole story is really going to deal more with the northern tribes than any of the southern tribes. Now, Jabin's top commander is Sisera. He lived in a city that uh, has not yet been fully identified in terms of where its location is, but he was a powerful man who led an army that included 900 iron chariots, which would have made him a superior force when it comes to plains and, and valleys when the ground is fairly level. Uh, it, would have ma- it would have given him a great advantage. And Jabin and Sisera oppressed the people, not just for eight years, or 18 years, but this time it's 20 years. And the additional detail is given here that it was especially cruel. 
that he cruelly oppressed him. He didn't just oppress him, he cruelly uh, oppressed him. Now, we don't know exactly what that cruelty was or what made it exactly so uh, heavy-handed or so unique, but that distinction is here, that he cruelly oppressed him for those 20 years. So let's read on, starting in verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabar, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his hills. And Deborah went up with him. So now we are introduced to the main characters of this story, Deborah and Barak. Deborah is a unique character in Scripture because it says that she was a prophetess, but also that she judged Israel at that time. Now, it's not unusual at all for the Spirit of God to use a woman, even in the Old Testament. We do have other examples of women being used by the Spirit of God, like Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, talks about Miriam, or 2 Kings 22, verse 14, and that introduces us to another prophetess called Huldah. Now, when the prophet Isaiah referred to his wife as a prophetess uh, in Isaiah 8.3, we're not exactly sure if he referred to her as a prophetess just because uh, she was his wife or because she herself had a prophetic gift, but at the very least, she bore that uh, title in that instance. So I don't think the idea of a woman operating in a spiritual gift should be unique or odd in any way. What is unique, however is that she judged Israel. Her leadership, her spiritual gifting, her wisdom was in such high regard that people came to her from all Israel to settle disputes. When you read chapter 5, verse 7, Deborah herself refers to herself as the mother in Israel. She saw herself as motherly and likely others did as well. So to have a woman be that high profile spiritually and even in a governmental sense, to have her in that type of leadership role is a bit unique. She is the only judge who operates closer to the Western idea of what a judge is. She settled disputes and, of course, because she had great wisdom as a prophet of God. So I think what we have to do here is acknowledge that this is one of those passages that can be brought up when the topic of women in ministry is discussed. 
Now, I'm not going to give a full treatment or even really a fair treatment uh, to that whole topic here because it's really a, a big topic, but I do think we should be honest about the limitations of this passage. Number one, the book of Judges is unique in the history of Israel because it's transitional. In a real sense, a lot of the things that happen in this book are not the way they are supposed to be. They're just the way they are. And because of that, even God operates in the upside-down nature uh, of this environment. It's not only uh, the time period that's problematic here uh, for us to develop any type of uh, doctrine, uh, but even in the context of the book, Deborah is the only female judge. She is not a military leader. She's not uh, a ceremonial religious leader. And by that, I mean, you know, she didn't lead services. You know, she didn't offer sacrifices. She didn't uh, do teachings or anything like that. We don't see her preaching or anything like that, okay? She is not a priest. She's a prophet. In fact, there are no female priests in the Old Testament because that was a restricted office to men, and not only to uh, men, but specifically to the line of Aaron. So while Deborah is a powerful and courageous figure, I'm not sure that we can really use her, fig- her example uh, to inform us on the distinctions between the roles of men and women, not only in society, but even inside the church. I think we have to look at passages of Scripture that are prescriptive and not just illustrative. What I mean is we should look at passages that tell us plainly what to do, what not to do, and how to think, and what not to think, uh, and not just passages where someone is an example of maybe some type of principle. So whether you are complementarian meaning that you seek to preserve a very classical distinction between the roles of men and women, either in the home, greater society, and inside the church, or whether you lean more egalitarian, as I do, which removes some of those distinctions and allows women to have roles that may have previously been reserved only for men, or all the different shades in between, because there really are a lot of different uh, positions in between those two extremes. Regardless of all of that, we have to acknowledge that Deborah was a powerful spiritual leader whom God clearly used to accomplish his purpose in Israel. Now, she lived in Ephraim. She was married. We know nothing really about her husband except that his name is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 4. So if you look at a map of all the tribal territories, Ephraim is going to be more in the central Uh, area because it's above Benjamin. So it's not southern, really, and it's not really all that far north. It's kind of more in the middle. The tribes, however, that are mostly involved in this story in chapter 4 are going to be the northern tribes. They seem to have been under the most oppression from Jabin and Sesera. So the fact that Deborah, being all the way down in Ephraim, is going to ultimately be involved in situations that are playing out much further to the north of where you would think her center of influence would be, really does suggest that she was extremely influential. Now, Barak, on the other hand, is from the northern tribe of Naphtali. 
Now, his hometown is firmly under the oppression of the Canaanites, so Deborah summoned uh, Barak, and the fact that he came did not question her word at all, did not question her authority, uh, also bodes well for Deborah as a spiritual leader, a very well-respected, recognized spiritual leader. But her question to him is kind of interesting, and it can be read one of two ways. Deborah said, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men? And she basically tells him uh, what he's supposed to do. Now, this can be prophetic, poetic. You know, it's kind of a, a question. Sometimes a question is not really a legitimate question. It's more a command. Uh, kind of like uh, when you ask your child, um, Are you supposed to be brushing your teeth right now? It's really not a real question. You're really telling them what they're supposed to be doing right now. And some people read it that way. Uh, it could also be read that perhaps he already knew what he was supposed to be doing. And that's why she's asking him, has not God commanded you to do this? Because he may have already had a sense that he was supposed to, and yet for whatever reason had not acted upon that. So I'm not sure we can really definitively say which it is. I just think that it's interesting that it could be that she's confirming to him what he already had a feeling or a sense of. His sense of it may have not been completely confident, maybe. Maybe he thought it, maybe he felt it, but maybe he wasn't confident in himself or in the mission. And so Deborah saying it to him, uh, help to confirm it, but his request that she go with him is kind of really, I think, a good one. I, I know sometimes that he gets knocked for this as, well, he didn't have enough faith to you know, go on his own or whatever, uh, but the reality is we don't know the depth of his spiritual life. We really don't know much about him uh, at all, and I think that it is fair for us to acknowledge that sometimes when it comes to spiritual matters, a person might be more confident if their pastor was right there with them. So I don't want to necessarily beat him up or think badly about him. I actually think we should give this man credit for not saying no. We should give him credit for not making excuses or trying to get out of it. He just asked for backup. And I don't think that that's an unreasonable request. It also could be because of Deborah's stature and her reputation that maybe it wasn't just for the battle's sake itself, maybe he thought people wouldn't follow him. But if she was there, you know, people would. We, we don't really know what the case is, but I don't think it's an unreasonable request, okay? But the request did come at a cost because Deborah prophesied that basically the cost of his request of her going would mean that a woman would ultimately uh, get the glory out of this. She would ultimately be the one that kills or, or would end uh, this, this uh, enemy, basically. So Barak is instructed to gather 10,000 men, which sounds like a huge number, but actually against 900 iron chariots in a plain or valley is not necessarily that impressive. 
Now, clearly, Caesarea had the military advantage, and we're not told, we're only told how many chariots he had, but that doesn't mean that was the full extent of his army. I mean, no one would have an army of only chariots. Certainly, he had other soldiers, okay, along with him, and we're just not told about that detail in the story. Now, Barak calls out soldiers from Zebulon and Naphtali. We're not told about any of the other tribes in chapter 4. However, in chapter 5, we find out that the people from Ephraim and Benjamin and Issachar were somehow all part of this coalition of tribes. Because these tribes are not mentioned early in this story, some people think that there was more than one phase of this military campaign. The the first phase is what we're about to talk about next, and, and that would involve these two northern tribes. But that's not without a little side note that we have to insert, and that's verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobad, the father of father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zimnamnim which is near Kadesh now verse 11 is just a setup to the end of the story it explains why Jael who is the wife of Heber might somehow end up involved in the story and that's because it would have been unusual for a Kenite to be this far north The Kenites were associated with the tribe of Judah, and they had essentially been traveling alongside Judah since the days of Moses' father-in-law. And ultimately, they did settle in the, the promised land of Judah. So it's unusual for this one particular Kenite and his wife to be this far north. A Hebrew reader of this story would expect him to be south. And that is why the writer includes this side note here, because this Kenite has separated himself from the other Kenites, and that would uh, that would have been much further in the south for whatever the reason, we're not told, but that explains why he is involved in this story. Now let's move to verse 12. Caesarea was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabar, Caesarea called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him. See, that's the extra part there. From Heroseth Hegoam to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heroseth Hegoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So here we have the battle in very succinct terms. When the two sides met, Uh, Mount Tabar would have obviously been the high ground, and the river Kashan would have been the low ground. Now, there's some indication here that God has done something to set up the victory for Barak. And we see Deborah says pretty much that in verse 14, when she says that has not the Lord gone out before you? Now, we would think that that's just metaphorical. Yes, the Lord goes before us. Okay, so the Lord has gone out before uh, Barak to prepare the way. 
But we actually think there may be some evidence in chapter 5 that something unique has happened that was obvious to them. Now, I'm not going, I'm going to jump very briefly into chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, From heaven the stars fought. From the courses they fought against Caesarea. The torrent Kashan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kashan, march on my soul with might. So in chapter 4, we're not told about any torrent. So where does it come from? Well, it is thought that this battle took place in the dry season, because if you're riding in chariots, you don't want to be on wet ground, especially to a river that's notorious for overflooding its banks in this area, okay? So this torrent that's mentioned in chapter 5 could indicate that somehow, miraculously, during the dry season, God sent rain and that this rain swelled the river and caused the valley to be well muddy. And that would, of course, nullify the effect of chariots. So God has gone before Barak and the army and sent rain to neutralize the enemy's greatest advantage. Of course, Barak and his men were successful and Caesarea ended up on the run. Let's pick it up there in verse 17. But Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazar and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. For he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple, into it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man who is who you are seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, Sisera fled out on foot, okay, and he's running, and he's come, he's ended up uh, by the tent of Jael. Again, they are not really supposed to be there, um, but we're not told exactly where her husband is at this moment. But we should know a few things, okay? In this culture, it would have been the wife's responsibility and the women's responsibility in general to set up the tents. So this is a woman who understands tent pegs and how to stake them down. And this is also a culture where if you accept someone into your home, represented by her tent, that was her home, that person comes under your care, under your authority, and under your protection, So think back to the story of Lot in the book of Genesis where the angels come inside his home and the men of uh, Sodom want to have relations with him. But Lot pleads with them not to do that, not just because it's an immoral thing, but because these men who have come into Lot's home have come under his protection. He would have been obligated to defend them. While that would have been uh, the, that would have been the same in this culture, okay? 
So when Sisera went inside her tent at her invitation, she was obligated now to protect him. Instead, she gave him something soothing to drink, and probably from exhaustion from the battle, he ultimately fell asleep. Now, the version I read says that uh, he was under a rug. It's kind of weird to kind of curl up in a rug. Um, it probably is more like a, a type of netting, a mosquito a netting, a mesh netting to protect you from bugs. And sometimes people slept under that. Whatever uh, made JL think that she should kill Cesara, we're not told. We're not told what her motivation was, and why she just took it upon herself to do this. Now, there is something interesting, an interesting thought about Caesarea's reputation that we actually get later in chapter 5. Now, uh, again, we're, we're told in this passage that there was peace between Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and Jael's husband. So we know that this man is probably known. He was a well-known com- commodity, okay? Um, and she knows that there's peace between her husband and his master. So how it is that she thought to herself, I should kill him, we're really not told. But there are clues. The whole story starts out by telling us that the oppression under King Jabin was very cruel, very cruel. So it's obvious that this is not normal. So she may have been familiar with some of the cruelty, some of the heavy-handed tactics uh, that Jabin and Sisera used. There's also a suggestion in chapter 5 when Deborah and Barak are singing after the victory, okay? They are poetically uh, singing. They envision Sisera's mother waiting for him to come back from the battle. And she's wondering why he's he's taking so long to come uh, back. And this is what it says in verse 30. And this is, again, poetically envisioning his mother saying this in verse 30. Chapter 5, verse 30. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Now, some people think that perhaps Sisera, when he conquered people, that Basically, the women and the daughters were sold into sex slavery or used for sex, and they were uh, maybe a part of the spoil. Okay, that's that's what he would divide up among his soldiers and among you know whoever he wanted to give gifts uh, to. He would have given them women as sex slaves. Now we don't know that that's uh, true. Uh, for sure, but Cesara's, De- Deborah is envisioning Cesara's mother is wondering why her son hasn't come, and she's thinking, well, maybe it's just taking longer for him to divide up the spoil, and she knows that it's, you know, a woman or two for each man is a part of this. So perhaps J.L. was familiar uh, with the fact that this guy was cruel with how he treated women under his regime which also might actually explain why two women are very prominent in the story of how this guy gets taken out. Now, we we don't know maybe that's why, but it's just interesting. So she being familiar with a tent peg and a hammer, she drove it uh, through his uh, temple and killed him. And so ultimately what Deborah had prophesied earlier, that a woman would get the credit, comes, I think, doubly true. Because I think Deborah is the more prominent figure uh, over Barak, oh, sorry, sorry, over Barak in this story, and over uh, a JL. So both these two women uh, get a lot of credit in this story. So let's read on to verse 23. 
So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So these last two verses here in chapter 4, they go back to what I mentioned earlier, that it appears that this was the second phase of the military campaign against the Canaanite oppression. And so perhaps Naphtali and Zebulon, these northern tribes, were a part of the first wave that took out Sesera's army, but then several other tribes get involved in this second wave as they pressed harder and harder against Jabin and ultimately destroy him. Now, we're not going to read chapter 5 because chapter 5 is the song that Deborah and Barak sing after this great victory. Now, my wife gives me a hard time because while we were dating, one night we were watching The Sound of Music and I fell asleep. So anytime that movie comes on TV or it comes up, she always reminds me that it's my favorite musical. Okay, it's her way of teasing me. Now, I do like the musical. I think it's very good. I was just tired that particular night. But if you've ever seen musicals, you know that anytime something significant happens in a musical, people break out in song. What we actually see all over the Old Testament is musicals. That when great things happen, great victories are won. People break out in song. Think of uh, the children of Israel. They cross over uh, on the other side of the Red Sea. What do they do? They break out in song. So many times we see that in Scripture all the way into the beginning part of the New Testament because what, what happens uh, for, for Mary after you know she gets uh, pregnant and she visits her, her cousin, what does she do? She breaks out in song. What happens after Zechariah is finally able to talk after John the Baptist is born? What does he do? He breaks out in song, okay? So it is not unusual that when significant things happen in people's lives, what do they do? They break out in song. There is a real sense here that even though we've been dealing with the duo of Deborah and Barak, There's also another duo at work, the duo of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 is a retelling of the history of what happened, and chapter 5 is a spiritual, worshipful retelling of what happened. Chapter 4, Deborah and Barak seem to be the principal actors in the story, but in chapter 5, it appears that God is the principal actor. You look at chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Um, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. Uh, Much earlier in chapter 4, sorry, in chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about the Lord going out, marching on the region of Edom. It talks about the mountains quaking before the Lord. God seems to be more the the subject and the principal actor in chapter 5, even though people are mentioned all throughout the chapter. And if you notice, all along, I was primarily dealing with chapter 4 in this podcast, but there were points at which we had no choice but to refer to chapter 5 in order to explain what was going on in chapter 4 because they go together. They naturally fit each other. See, sometimes we are focused too much on our part and what we're doing and what's going on on our end, and we haven't made it to chapter 5 yet, which shows us what God has been doing all along. That's when we finally gain great perspective. 
And so I think it's a good principle to turn our struggles and our victories into songs because it's through worship that we gain heaven's perspective of what went, what we went through all along. And it's not uh, just that way in chapter uh, four, but in chapter five, that's when we really get to the end of this story. In verse 31, it just says the, the land had rest for 40 years. So what's the takeaway here from uh, today's episode? Where Here it is. Even though we didn't read all of chapter 5, I think chapter 5 makes it pretty clear that even though the Lord is the principal subject, that there are several points at which people had to rise up. And that's why I talked about those other tribes that are mentioned in chapter 5 because it basically says they had they had to rise up to the occasion. And then Deborah goes so far in chapter 5 as to call out the tribes that didn't rise up to the, the occasion. She calls out the tribe of Asher and Dan and Reuben for not joining the, the coalition. So you have these people that rose up to meet the challenge and then these people that didn't. Pretty much all throughout this story, there are people who had to rise up to meet the challenge of the day. Consider Barak, who lived in a town that was under the weight of oppression and yet hadn't done anything. And it's not until he is called out that he rose up to meet the challenge that God had called him to. Think of J.L. Uh, as we we saw her uh, just kind of coming upon an opportunity. When that opportunity came her way, she rose to the occasion on that particular day, even though it violated several cultural norms of her time. This is the point. God is the one who goes before us. God is the one who ultimately delivers the victory, but that does not absolve us of our responsibility to rise up and meet the challenges of our day. Our part is to respond to God's call and to rise up and do that which God is calling us to do. Well, that's all we have for you today on this episode. Next time, we're going to hop into chapter 6. We're going to meet a character in the Bible that we are all very familiar with. It's going to be very interesting as we walk through his story, okay? So I can't wait to talk about that with you on the next episode of By the Verse.